Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about Nightcrawler, the 2014 film written and directed by Dan Gilroy. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Ervan. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayeros. Hi. It's fun to be talking about Nightcrawler because this was a very early video on Lessons from the Screenplay, and I distinctly remember it was the video that came after The Dark Knight. Uh, Ooh, that's a tough act to follow. And so I remember, right, that video (laughs) going viral and then having this like wave of anxiety of like, well, how do you follow that up? Like everyone on the internet is surely waiting to see what I'm going (laughs) to do next. So what do I do? (laughs) And so I decided to do a, a hard left turn and go completely the opposite direction from a big budget thing and do this kind of smaller indie movie that I feel like at the time, not a lot of people had seen, Mm. which was Nightcrawler. It was fun. I feel like revisiting the video, I feel like I sum up a lot of my feelings about the movie that I still have upon rewatching it. Uh, But I do remember seeing it for the first time. And it was Alex, you messaged me and were like, I'm going to go see this movie we should go see a movie. And I was like, I don't want to do things. And you were like, let's just go see this movie. There's no reason not to do it. We want to make movies. We should go see a movie in a theater, Michael. Right. What an argument. And so you essentially dragged me to the theater and then it was great. And then I really, really, uh, yeah, I loved Nightcrawler. Rewatch it again. I, I still, I think it holds up. It's really good. There's a lot of interesting storytelling choices that I think make it an interesting experience. But yeah, I want to hear from you guys. So I don't know, Alex, you know, from that first viewing, has anything changed? How do you feel about the movie? I agree. I think my feelings about it are are about the same rewatching it uh, recently. I I was going to say one of my my, like distinct memories walking out of the theater was when you were so I could tell you liked it so much. I I had this really like sweet gratification of like, (laughs) see, Michael, you don't have to be so cynical. There are still good movies and it's worth seeing them. (laughs) Taking chances on movies is good. Anyway, so yeah, I I have very positive memories of that theater experience because I was right. (laughs) But uh, no, but that that movie was, uh, it was really refreshing because it was also part of the Jake Gyllenhaal renaissance that was happening at that moment. Like he was Mm -hmm. in Prisoners the previous year, another Mm -hmm. very dark film in which he's excellent. And I think it was just a moment in which he was making really specific choices about what films he wanted to do and getting really involved on the creative side of these films and crafting the characters he wanted to play. The Southpaw was around the same time, which was another mm-hmm. like transformative mm-hmm. Jake Gyllenhaal thing. Yeah. Okja. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Anyway, so yeah, I, I, I love Jake Gyllenhaal and I, it was really fun to see him doing roles like this and just really, mm-hmm. you know, sinking his teeth into them. So so yeah, I, I loved it. And to me, it, it felt like a great dark satire. It was just so deliciously dark, especially by the <laughs> ending. It's it is almost like this. We can get into it, but uh, the film almost seems like giddy in, in just what it's mm-hmm. pulled off by the end, uh, which I always I like to feel from a movie where it's like, <laughs> look at how deliciously evil this is. Uh, so yeah, those are all my my messy feelings coming out of that theater at the Americana. Yeah, Pacific Theater, rest in peace in L.A. <laughs> I love how Jake Gyllenhaal started his career with October Sky and he was like, look at me, I'm a normal boy doing normal movies. <laughs> and then his next movie was Donnie Darko. Right. He was like, yeah. never mind, I'm not going to do any normal movies. Well, I mean, you know, it's just like for every source code, there's also like, oh, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. like yeah. Unhinged Jake. Yeah. yeah. 
What choices? Because he's also the the prince of Persia, let us not forget. So he's really, he's done all the things. Yeah, he really has. I think I read in an interview with him once, that was kind of his like turning point of, I gotta like stop for a second and (laughs) do some other decisions. (laughs) Right. But yeah, but he also is a Marvel villain too. Right. So then, you know, he's, he's done a lot. There's a lot of ground that we've covered here. Yeah. For sure. Okay, Brian, what about you? What are your thoughts on this movie? Yeah, I saw it not in the theater, but definitely when it came out to home video. Ah. And uh, and loved it right away. It sort of had a, you know, it was like a taxi driver meets collateral kind of thing for me. Yeah. It has mm-hmm. that very LA at night digital yeah. kind of Michael Manny feel to it. But then it has the dark brooding taxi driver, you know, loneliness to it. Performances are so good. And I I'm I'm a fan of movies that give you a sort of questionable character, but you can tell very clearly how why that is the point of the movie. Mm. It's like this movie starts with him beating up a dude and like stealing stuff. It's like the movie is not saying you maybe you're gonna like this guy by the end. The movie is like no no th- this is like a bad guy and but you're gonna follow him and that kind of thing and and we can get into what the actual plot is and how it ends and everything. Um, but I like those movies that are sort of like take that kind of left turn right off right from the get-go but it's so like this movie is very clear in its themes and its statements and that kind of thing that i think you're allowed to you're allowed to do that kind of stuff when you're Mm -hmm. like look we are making a pretty damn clear point about media and society and that kind of thing and this is our character through which we're going to see this story so yeah i loved it right off the bat and i've probably seen it maybe three times since and like you guys were saying it it hasn't gotten like phenomenally better every time i watch it but also hasn't gotten worse it's just like a very solid movie that remains a very solid movie every time i watch it Mm. yeah so trisha you saw it most recently out of all of us yes i did i saw it a couple of days ago (laughs) for the first time this was one of those movies where for some reason in my brain it's a different movie than it actually is like I think in my brain, this was a much more violent film for some mm. reason. Not that there isn't violence in this movie, but that's certainly not the point of it. And I also didn't even know what it was about. I think I was just mm. somehow confused by the trailer or something. And I was like, I had no idea this was about stringers, which is really funny to me because I actually watched the Netflix series that they made about stringers. That's like mm. a documentary mm. about oh, stringers in oh. Los Angeles. It's a Netflix show called Shot in the Dark. It's from 2017 and it's real footage of stringers like running around in LA about in and, and like definitely like a Bill Paxton character who has like a franchise with a bunch of vans and like lots of, I mean, it is this movie essentially. Wow. Um, or clearly the movie, you know, sort of sparked interest in who these people really are. And then, so I watched that series and I was like, this series rules. I love shot in the dark. <laughs> and then I was like, I clearly didn't even know what Nightcrawler was. Nightcrawler yeah. was good. Like, I was pleasantly surprised that the movie was able to sort of just take me off on this ride. And I would consider this to be a crime movie. We can maybe talk about the genre mm-hmm. a little bit. But if you think about the crime movie as we follow a criminal and just kind of see if they're going to get away with it. And, you know, Talented Mr. Ripley, which is one of my favorite movies and stories ever, has this exact sort of vibe to it where it's like, here's a sociopath Mm -hmm. and we're just going to see if he gets away with it. And that in itself is enough to sort of keep us hooked. Brian, the mood that you were talking about Mm -hmm. really reminds me of this uh, letterbox list that I have kind of been working off of, watching movies off of, which is called Nightlands, colon, long weird neon nights in the city, 
parentheses or in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a great letterbox list. You can look it up. There's lots of movies on it that I really love, like The American Friend, which I talked about on here, which is a talented Mr. Ripley story. Right. And of course, you know, stuff like Blade Runner and all of these long, weird neon nights in the city films. Collateral, of course, is one of those. So. Yeah. But yeah, it's got that tone to it. And then, it, of course, it is this really interesting crime story where it's not like the character is going to have an arc, right? We kind of mm -hmm. understand that. The question just is, what will happen to them? Will they possibly get away with it, right? Can they possibly get away with it and continue to cheat their comeuppance until the end? Right. Which is always entertaining. Right. And the sort of escalation of mm -hmm. how far will this go? You know, I think and right. that, and that is because it's like, if you took the ending of this movie and put it in another movie, it might not feel that like it's that big of a deal in terms of like the scope of it and the stakes of it and that kind of thing. But in this movie where we start with just like the worst thing is like someone had a car accident or the worst thing is like he's maybe not telling somebody he's going here. Then like to have the ending you get from this movie suddenly feels enormous, you know, sure. Um, which is a, which is a cool thing that stories can do. It's not that every story has to be bigger than every other story you've seen it's every story has to escalate within the world of whatever that story right is. exactly yeah. right well and i think it's interesting that he never directly kills anybody mm. like I, I, which is i think is kind of part of the the way this this movie navigates morality and empathy and like who you're supposed to be connecting to like i, I think there's just this really interesting tone that comes from how so many of the scenes are played and the music is one of the the most clear right mm -hmm. that you know the director has talked about there's the big scene where jake Hall decides to move the body of the person right mm -hmm. he comes upon this crash and it's not the body of this person isn't yeah. good enough the framing needs to be better so he decides to go and move the body and that's like a big turning point for him and the music there isn't trying to make you feel concerned or isn't overly dark or like isn't this awful what it's doing it's this kind of like epic score like you are in his head his mind like this is a big achievement he is right. achieving this grand thing like this is a beautiful moment for him and the music is doing that mm -hmm. the music and a lot of the storytelling is telling the story as if it's you know as the quote in the video is saying like you know it's a, a guy that starts small business and like is successful by the end it's like this rags to riches <laughs> right, like, right. great story an american story right mm -hmm. but he's doing it in this kind of sociopathic horrific way and how the movie holds both of those things I, mm -hmm. is one of my favorite parts of this movie oh yeah it's funny you mentioned the music there because i feel like that's the one time where i noticed the music sort of telling me what was going to happen before it happened because i think it sort of does that sort of swell like you're talking about two seconds before he actually moves so it's almost like the music is his idea and then we mm. actually see the idea take place but yeah it's such a james newton howard score like it's so it's not just this one note moody lonely thing it is mm -hmm. that for a lot of the movie the sort of like synth kind of feel to it but then it does get big and it does get playful and it sort of does all it all feels like it's the same score and it feels like it's in the same world but you could really easily make a version of this movie that is completely one note. And this movie is kind of one note in the sense it doesn't ever try to get too far from this sort of bleak thing that it's doing, but it does get playful and it does get sort of almost fun at some points, even though you're always coming back to this place of like, ugh. I would say from the opening scene, James Newton Howard is setting this 
really interesting balance. I, I was I'm going to note that the music in that opening over those great shots of L.A. at night mm. has this perfect balance of like go getter momentum mm-hmm. and like an undertone of doom, like something <laughs> really bad is going to happen. But like we're really excited to get there. And <laughs> and it, I think it's a great statement right at the top of the movie that this is not just because there is we've all seen the like art house or film festival film that is just in love with how dark it is. And it's just this dreary one note for an hour and a half, which, you know, becomes it stops being effective after a certain point. You get you get kind of mm-hmm. numb to it. You, you tune out because it's like I'm just tired of feeling this note <laughs> and this movie could have been that you're right brian i think it's so smart to approach this subject with the structure basically of a success story you know it's mm-hmm. a it's a success story about a guy achieving his dreams of having a small business yeah <laughs> in the darkest possible way right and there are some comedic elements at play here i think where mm-hmm. i found myself laughing you know sort of because i was so uncomfortable right yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. lou bloom as a character is so out of step with how humans are like he's not a normal person in any way or just like you know out of touch he doesn't read social cues and he himself completely lacks empathy for his fellow humans and so he doesn't know how to behave you know normally and the way that he is overly polite and overly Mm. articulate especially when he is you know, as you point out in the video, Michael delivering really dark threats. (laughs) There's this dissonance to how out of step he is. That's funny. Mm -hmm. Right. In a way, right. Where you're like, are you for real? Like (laughs) that's sort of your reaction. I think we've all sort of met this person where you can't tell if they're kidding or not. And so as you're trying to read them, you're sort of cycling through your own emotions. Like, am I supposed to laugh? Are they kidding? Are they not kidding? Am I weird now if I laugh now that it's been 30 <laughs> seconds? Like that kind of thing. And, and Jake Gyllenhaal has said, I read a quote from him that basically was saying like, oh, Dan Gilroy and I were cracking up the whole time we were making this. Right. We thought that they were being, you know, that Lou Bloom is so funny, which is horrifying to me. But, right. you know, it, it does <laughs> but make it is. sense. Like, yeah, it is. To, to me, it's interesting you mentioned the, the crime genre. And I, I, I agree that, that is kind of how the movie is formed. But to me, I really I laugh a lot during this movie, it, it, sometimes un- a lot of times uncomfortably. And, and it feels like a dark comedy in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Hello, listener. Uh, Michael here. Just want to remind you guys that we are doing a mini series on Loki for our patrons. I'm here with Trisha and Brian right now. We're about to record our episode on Loki episode three. By the time you hear this, it will be out. So if you want to follow along with our reactions, uh, the link to go straight to that in Patreon will be waiting in the show notes. Brian, Trisha, you ready to do this? Yeah. We are burdened with glorious purpose. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. All right. We will see you guys over on Patreon. The sort of payoff moment of all of this is when he brings the final footage at the end. And there's that moment with Rene Russo and she's like, it's beautiful, you know? It's like sexual tension. Right. But that moment is, if you don't get it by now, you're going to be like, this movie is terrible, right? Like, that's because I think what's fun and what you guys were both just touching on is the movie never tells you that it's joking, if that makes sense. Like, it sort of plays it straight because that is kind of where I don't want to call it pure comedy, obviously, but but the sort of purposeful, uncomfortable, you know, kind of feeling that you get, it's because the movie is playing it straight. Yes. 
you don't have the character being like, get a load of this guy. You have everyone sort of like reacting to Lewis and like trying to maybe. And it's almost like the tragedy of this movie is that at the end, Rene Russo is like sucked. Like if Paddington is, you know, everyone's sucking, <laughs> Paddington's sucking everyone into joy. Like this is him sucking Rene Russo into just like, this is my reality. Like you have Riz Ahmed who sort of is never fully happy to to go to that place, which is why obviously that's another tragedy. But the other tragedy, I think, is that moment where it's like, she's like, this is beautiful. And it's like, that moment is hilarious if you are on board with what this movie is trying to do. And that moment yeah. is like awful and insane if you have no idea what this movie is right. trying to do. Well, and the extremity, right? There's this predatory nature to mm. both him and Rene Russo. Mm. And as you're pointing out, they both play it straight. But it's so extreme that it's kind of satirical, right. right? Which also kind of pushes it into that comedy space where it's like, she just said that with a straight face. Right. <laughs> Can they not hear themselves, right? It's that sort of, you've pushed it so beyond the bounds of what would be socially acceptable in this situation of a thing to say that it does become satirical. Right. I remember um, talking to some of our patrons on our Discord about Promising Young Woman mm. and you know, someone was saying, or there's something like, oh, I don't believe that this would have happened. I'm like, to me, both these movies operate in a similar space where it's like, it's not about being believable. It's not about like, like, look mm -hmm. at, look at how real this story is. No, it's about like, we created this world that is somewhat stylized. And once we sort of set the rules for that world, then we are sort of maybe giving the story leeway to operate in this kind of heightened space where things can be very convenient and that kind of thing. But it's okay, because the point is, not that you're trying to replicate reality. The point is that you are telling us a story and that's how stories right. work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it's interesting because I think the third act for me definitely arrives at that place where it's heightened reality and we're pushing it beyond what is feels like you could expect to see in, in reality. But I feel like for most of the movie, I think what I like about it is that it feels so real. Like I think Lou as a non- human human right or like a an entity lacking empathy right which exists yeah yeah they do sociopath right feels very honest to me or or like you know it's it doesn't feel like someone playing a kind of caricature of like i'm a sociopath right. and i'm evil it feels like it's just someone that's like if i didn't have empathy and I just took everything literally and couldn't read social cues like the lessons that I learn on the internet what mm -hmm. if I literally executed them the way they mm -hmm. were presented to me mm -hmm. you know that that all feels like authentic and believable to me and I think that he's surrounded by people that do have empathy and that call him on his BS like when he's trying to sell the bicycle to, in the pawn shop <laughs> right. like I love right. that interaction yeah. with the guy I'm just like no no bike has 37 gears I'm <laughs> sorry yeah. Yeah. and then Riz Ahmed who is amazing in this movie yes. is the yeah. first movie I so saw good. I just want to hug him he's so <laughs> funny too yeah. Yeah. he's so great I could not believe he was British after seeing this movie <laughs> like he's right. such uh -huh. a good actor he's such a good actor he disappears into this role so completely and right. he's, he, yeah, you just want to hug him. Those like big brown eyes. He's just so <laughs> like, he's just so like innocent in a way. Right. Yes. Like, yeah, of course, he's like the best person to pair with Lou and mm -hmm. have on this journey. And I feel like that it kind of helps do kind of what you were talking about earlier, Brian, of, of it's the movie never loses 
its moral compass or rather like i never feel like i need to be double checking on the movie of like right. does the movie think right that this is actually good right like what this person <laughs> is doing unlike some other movies about some crazy people that we could talk about uh, mm-hmm. but we won't <laughs> and i think part of that is who lou was surrounded by and riz ahmed's character is like so empathetic and so relatable mm-hmm. and like i feel like that there's enough of that anchoring around. It lets you kind of go on this journey and exist in this space in just a yeah, a really brilliant way. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Two things off of that. One, I think the the interview scene at the beginning is a great sort of statement of who this character is and that kind of thing, where the guy's like, look, he, you know, he tries so hard to like get this deal and he finally gets the deal. And then the guy is, I'm not gonna hire a thief. Like, forget right. about it. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. I think that's such a perfect here's what Luke can do and then here's what he can't do because people are going to see him for what he is like you were saying michael but when i talk about the heightened reality i think to me it's less about the stuff you're talking about with oh here's who this character is and here's how other people respond to him i think it's just more about the convenience of everything just sort of mm-hmm. like right sure. place right time kind of thing and i think that's where another movie wouldn't work but this movie does work because it's just sort of like hey look we are kind of in this slightly heightened place so it's fine if this thing happens to be here or he happens to overhear this and that kind of thing but i agree with you that it sort of starts out in a in a more real place and then kind of gets to be a little bit more silly as it goes on but in a way that feels like it's earned it feels gradual mm-hmm. and earned yeah because you don't know that this movie could stay sort of trying to be real and and keep doing that and i'm not saying this movie gets like insane like but the movie sort of takes this slow climb into now things are getting more and more convenient and more and more kind of over the top. And and I think it works totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I will say for as entertained and impressed as I was watching it, I wouldn't say that I was surprised by how it went. Right. Because of what you're talking about, Brian, it starts telegraphing to you what's going to happen, right? Mm. Where like, for some is like, I'm not getting out of the car. Like, mm-hmm. he's like, nothing bad's going to happen to you. I'm like, oh, he's definitely going to die. <laughs> right. Like, And yeah, the fact that, you know, you're looking at the runtime in the movie and you're going, okay, he's going to follow them to this restaurant and that's going to go the worst possible way that it can. And as Lou's situation like escalates or rather as he dives deeper and deeper towards the bottom place that he's going to go, the moral seller, if you will. But like, as that happens, the movie is telling you this is going to get real dark. So like, you know, somebody important's going to die and, you know, it's going to, Lou is going to the dark place, basically. And so it doesn't right. end up being surprising or it doesn't exactly end up feeling twisty. And that's maybe just the nature of what his job is and what the world is. Whereas, you know, other crime stories, you're sort of dependent on somebody's going to catch the criminal. So there's another player mm. that also has agency that is trying to stop them from succeeding. And in this movie, because there's no other characters that are actively trying to prevent Lou from doing anything, right? Once Bill Paxton's character is out of the picture, it's just Lou versus the knight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Like, like he, he has to deliver and it's not delivering for him. Right. Right. That ends up being, you know, situations that he kind of can control, but kind of not. And so they have to go his way in order for the plot to happen. And so that creates that convenience that you're talking mm. about, Brian, where it's like, if stuff doesn't go lose way, then there's no plot. It's not like someone else. Yeah. There's another character in the mix right, right. that's kind of 
pushing the plot along or confounding Lou in some way for, you know, as he's trying to reach his goal, which I don't necessarily mind. It's just sort of the nature of what this movie is. It's it's just has to be a little bit lucky for Lou, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's interesting because I always think the movie's going to turn more into that crime thriller genre when the cops do come to his apartment and interview him. Yes, thank you. But they're kind mm. of not really They don't. They don't really stay on him. You know, they don't they don't they don't follow him. They don't really track what he's doing. So, they're not really ever that much of a threat to him. Right. It's a little bit of a red herring where it wants you to think that she's onto him and she's going to shut him down. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't end up going somewhere. Right. I think it just always helps during the movie to have a secondary character whether it's Riz Ahmed, whether it's the the metal sheet metal guy at the beginning, whether it's the pawn shop owner, whether it's the police, you know, the main detective who was just like I don't buy this for a second, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And and it's sort of like as as much as I said the movie plays it straight in the sense that it is not telling us that it's that it's sort of having fun, it also does let us have those characters who are just like we we get to sort of relax a little bit when a character says you're full of it there's no way i'm buying this we're like okay so this movie doesn't expect us to believe (laughs) like it doesn't make us right that everyone yeah just that everyone just buys it and get away with what everyone yeah right well and i think that's what helps us connect with lou is maybe too strong a word or like too emotional of a word but Mm -hmm. i talk in the video about how lou is really good at this thing and that is sometimes a way that lets us you know kind of invest in a character or see things from their point of view and i think part of it is also like his superpower isn't he knows the right thing to say at the right time like i feel like that's kind of maybe another sociopathic trope if you want to go more like Mm -hmm. you know i don't know gone girl or like something where it's like oh they're they're superpowers they know how to manipulate people perfectly and blah 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 and lose isn't that he like runs up against obstacles all the time when dealing with people but it's fascinating to watch him figure out how to overcome those or circumvent those obstacles. And I think he is good at relentlessly pursuing that. And that's kind of what I think, for me anyway, makes me darkly curious to keep watching. And I think that's also why the third act of the movie, it does kind of shift. I feel like it's less about what's going to happen and more, you know, bad is going to happen but what right. is going to be the bad because i feel like even when once Reza Ahmed's character is like i want half and lou is like well mm-hmm. the look in his eyes if you can't negotiate yeah mm-hmm. like i guess i'm just gonna have to give it to you like mm-hmm. i feel like the subtext of that performance is i'm going to have to have murder to you, you now yeah. 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 Yeah, it's yeah. just a matter of when and how mm-hmm. the screenplay i think also does a good job of making what lou wants and the obstacles in front of him very clear. So there are this room for subtext, right? Where So again, going back to like the bicycle scene where he's trying to sell the bicycle. We know he's stolen the bike and he's trying to get money because he wants a camera. You know, when he's lying, we know he's lying. So that's kind of fun. And there's there's stuff in between the lines there. And when you see him fail, we know he's failing. And so then it's interesting to see how he kind of course corrects and finds a way to still get what he wants. So I feel like the the script is very simple as far as like showing us this is what Lou wants and this is what's in his way. And these are the obstacles. And so then the fascination can come from how is this person that is not a person because he lacks human empathy going to figure out how to manipulate the system and the people 
to get the thing that he wants. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the scene that really brings all of it together is that Mexican restaurant scene. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's everything we're talking about in one scene uh, where he's running up against an obstacle, but he's, he's using his sociopathic superpowers to just lay out very plainly a series of facts to just put, the Rene Russo character into a corner, Nina. And that scene, watching it again, is just, it's such a crazy scene. <laughs> and it's so well done because it's that thing where this should be a joke. This, like, you can't be serious, but he is serious. And she's in this delicate position of needing what he has to offer and not trying to offend him, but definitely not wanting to agree to anything that seems ridiculous but then the further it goes the further it seems like she has no other choice it's just a really remarkable scene of two people sitting at a table Mm -hmm. in a restaurant what you're talking about both of you michael and alex has to do with the world that this movie exists in and how it's built and the characters that populate it because this movie essentially posits and lou essentially posits that no one is inherently moral right? Like he's not going to run up against somebody who has very rigid morality. He's going to run up against somebody who has a goal in the same way that he does. Mm -hmm. And if he can make them see that their goals align, they're going to go along with him. Basically, he's assuming that everyone is a degree somewhere, you know, close to the kind of sociopath that he is in, in a way, or I guess opportunist is the other word that we would use for him, right? Like he does try to create situations, but he also just takes advantage of situations when he sees them. And he's kind of assuming that everybody is exactly the same way that he is. And so he's assuming that no one has some higher moral code that they're following, right? Where he's like, you don't really care whether or not I am a thief. You're not going to turn me in for like stealing all of these, you Mm -hmm. know, all of the chain link and all of the whatever, but you are, you know, maybe not going to hire me and that's okay. Like basically where there's it's not like that guy cares that he's a thief it's just that it doesn't align with his interests to right. hire a thief right it's like a logical conclusion yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's not like Rene russo cares that he is this morally depraved you know <laughs> videographer who's like going into people's houses and filming their recently deceased bodies mm, <laughs> she doesn't right. actually care about that the morality right. of that she's out to see what she could get out of that situation. And so the world that this movie, basically everyone who inhabits this world, you know, essentially including Riz Ahmed, it's not like he really has a problem with what they're doing either. He thinks it's dangerous and kind of messed up, but still he needs the money, right? So everybody in this world is somewhere in the same neighborhood as Lou is. And he's kind of counting on that fact. And the movie is also kind of counting on that fact for these scenes to have the kind of, we're saying it's like enjoyments, but it is like, how's Lou going to convince them or what do they need? And how is that going to align with what Lou is trying to get in this scene? Yeah, Trisha, all the things you're pointing to here really remind me of the other thing I thought when I walked out of this movie, which was what an amazing social satire this film is. Because the transactional nature of all things is this comment on, you know, just a hyper capitalist transactional culture where none of these like humanist values, like, you know, have monetary value. So discard those. Yeah. What can I get out of this interaction? What can you get out of this interaction? That's what matters. It's like, you know, it's, it's all transactional. Everything's transactional. And I think that is where Lou's 
essentially like lack of empathy makes him so successful in this exactly. universe because he can take those literal tools from his online business course and apply them to every human relationship, everything he does. And it is kind of what's ultimately a flat economic system with no morality does is just basically flattens all of life into this transactional nature. And and Nightcrawler is essentially like a happy success story in that universe. <laughs> right. Yeah. The people who come out on top are the people who care the least. Right. Mm-hmm. About harming others. Right. Based on like everything you were just saying, there's this, you know, sort of disconnect that we have in our heads where we're like, oh, the corporate news organization is like the clean everything is done professionally kind of thing mm. in the world, you know, just in any, in our real world. And then there are the thugs out in the street doing thuggish things and they are, you know, low morals and that kind of thing. And this movie's like, sure, but what if a thug was a businessman? And what if one of the news people was willing to basically do anything to get the footage, you know? And it's like, now you're blurring those lines where it's like you have Blue sort of coming from thug world and Hina coming from corporate world, but they're basically the same person, right? They're basically just sort of like willing to, as you said, care the least. I'm not saying they're the same person, but. <laughs> but I mean, they have the yeah. same complete lack of empathy for exactly. the people that are right, being right, right. filmed and the lives that are being destroyed. And <laughs> Right. So you're basically destroying those lines between like, yeah, in order for handsome news anchor to show us this footage someone's got to go get it someone's got to go do this kind of stuff and they've had to move a body to get it or if they have to you know set something up to get it they'll do it and there is no you know the the line between those things is not as as big as we would maybe hope it would be yeah davis think that corporate news was still good But I say corporate, I mean like literally that word entails a certain professionalism and that kind of thing. I'm not saying we all have sheen. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Proper, clean. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and I think that's what I love about this movie also on on like a thematic level is that it it implicates all of us. Of course. It just reveals that we are... The viewers want it. Yeah. Right, like we're all part of the system. And like I'm generally someone that's like a you know don't hate the player hate the game kind of a person and like what are the the systems that make someone take the actions that they do and i feel like lou is this kind of exceptional player who reveals the problems of the rules of the game that we're all trying to play mm-hmm. and just like the kind of the structural weaknesses where all of this is also built on assuming people have some kind of morality and just like for the the normals of us walking around, there is this kind of unspoken set of rules of, you know, there are boundaries to what you can and can't do. We are trying to achieve our goals, but there are things that you can and can't do. And having Lou be someone that isn't bound by those rules reveals just how kind of messed up those rules are. And also, mm-hmm. I think just like it reveals a weird, interesting aspect of humanity that there is this weird ineffable set of you know social norms that yeah Yeah. right i mean it's part of the reason why we see sociopathic ceos like right like people who like obey social norms and try to be nice to each other in a system that doesn't have like room for that like that is not part of the transaction it's not baked into the transactional nature of what is expected who's going to rise to the top in that system like the person who's not going to waste time on the empathetic, maybe slowing you down, social niceties of non-transactional culture. (laughs) Right. 
it's really interesting because I was reading a tiny bit about the cinematography and how they were like inspired by, you know, sort of nature and like our animal nature, you know, this kind of dog eat dog, like Mm. it's just a brutal world essentially. And so there's not any like soft focus in here. They wanted to like make it kind of look like a nature documentary Mm -hmm. Hmm. where, you know, it has this, yeah, very uh, sort of raw feel to the way that the um, just, yeah, basically all the colors, the depth of feel, like light and darkness, all of this stuff. And that Jake Gyllenhaal is so skinny in this mm-hmm. where he's so God. rangy and looks, yeah, like a coyote, right? Or, or Right. The whole movie looks like the coyote scene from Collateral, like, <laughs> where suddenly there exactly. are animals in the wild of Los Angeles. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and yeah, it has this voyeuristic, you know, sort of setback feeling to the cinematography pretty much all the time, unless we're with Lou, right, from his point of view. And right. It's just really fascinating that they're kind of pointing to not just the indictment of our society and the way that we're talking about and capitalism and like unemployment, because all of that is baked in here. But the bigger question is like, is it in our very nature Mm. to, you know, sort of kill each other if we can get ahead from that? Like, is that sort of the basic level of who we all are, given a lack of a job for however long Lou has been out of a job? Would we all be Lou? Right, right. I mean, we wouldn't all say guesstimate because that's like pure evil. Like once he said that in the first five minutes, I was like, well, forget about that. <laughs> I thought about that. <laughs> but no, yeah, it's it's funny because I was thinking about this, the the sort of the feel of the movie, the cinematography, the digital feel. It makes us feel like we're the ones watching the footage of of this thing unfold, you know? Thank God this is not a found footage movie, but Mm -hmm. it's still while also feeling like a movie and feeling like it has cinematography, it has this feeling like I'm watching this unfold. And then, of course, it makes you think to yourself, you're like in that in the third act, you're going, well, I don't want Riz Ahmed to die, but also I kind of want to watch what's going to (laughs) happen. So that voyeuristic, ugly part of us is like equally as excited to see like the worst possible thing happen as it is hoping that the characters we like get, you know, survive and the characters you don't like get their comeuppance. But part of us is also like, yeah, but I kind of am curious to see what happens. We are the people watching the local news while watching the movie. Right. Right. (laughs) And it has that rear window feeling to it also Mm. when you're you're back watching those scenes unfold, essentially from Lou's point of view. You feel a little bit safe, right? Like, mm-hmm. Lou isn't really concerned for his own safety. You could look at the way that he drives to know that. He right. doesn't really care whether he, like, is in danger or not personally. But there's this excitement and this thing that sucks you in about watching sort of the drama of what's happening on the streets right in yeah. front of you that makes you feel like none of this is going to, like, splash back onto me, but I'm desperate to see it. And so I'm willing to get kind of close to it. Well, the, the taco shop scene is a great example of that, where the cameras yeah. never go inside the taco shop. We're exactly. always from that right. voyeuristic perspective. And, right. and you do feel safe. You do feel like the danger or the thing you're on the edge of your seat to watch is like, how bad is it going to be for the people in the shop and the cops? And you, you don't worry for Lou. Right. Yeah. It's not end of watch. Speaking of digital Jake Gyllenhaal <laughs> movies. <laughs> 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, why don't we go around and say what lessons we're going to take from Nightcrawler. Brian, do you want to start us off? I mean, obviously, just if you're going to have Bill Paxton in your movie, you want 80s Bill Paxton in your movie, regardless of what decade <laughs> the movie came out of. <laughs> yes. Now, uh, I think it's the the opposing traits make good character design, right? I mean, this is a sort of staple of of character design is to have them have opposing traits. But when you think about the two things this movie could be, because I don't think there's ever been a movie about stringers or at least not a popular one. Mm. So there could have just been a movie about kind of a, you know, I use the word thug, but I just mean sort of, you know, just some some scrappy guy who is getting footage and just doing whatever he can to get by and that kind of thing. Or you could have a movie about this really driven businessman who's kind of a sociopath and he is trying to get a job at this office and do anything he can to get to the top. And he's got a meeting with the boss and that kind of thing. But instead, you make it both those things at once. So instead of this just being one of those things, it's both of those things. So like you said, it's this kind of grim movie about this guy doing escalatingly criminal things to get footage of grisly things. But also, as we were saying at the beginning, it's also a story about a businessman whose dream is to run a successful business. And at the end, he does. So having both those <laughs> things makes this feel this movie feel unique and it already would feel unique if it was just a movie about stringers, but it took it to the next step. Then I think that also ties into the theme because like we were talking about, it's blurring the line between, well, what's the difference between someone getting people killed to take footage of them and the person in the corporate sphere who is willing to do whatever it takes to get ahead? Is there a difference? Is the only difference sort of what we have been told through you know, society mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. So to have this character be operating on both those planes, it allows the story to be both those things, but it also just allows the character to be just watchable and weird and, and give the actors something so fun to, to play with. That's not just, you know, Hey man, I'm out here trying to get footage and whatever. Like it's, it's a guy trying to get footage of grisly things, but being an insane, like, I learned how to speak to humans on the internet kind of person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, and he has like, he's all about hustle, you know, like there's, the, yeah. there's that psychopathic hustle that we're like, we're advertised sometimes. There's that one like subway ad that, that got a huge backlash in New York one time where it was like, you're, you're the kind of person that doesn't even have breakfast. You just like gulp down some coffee and you don't have time for like lunch. Right. You do the, it's like, it was like this, this kind of insane, like, like, please kill your body for hustle because it's so amazing <laughs> oh and, yeah and i think and jake gyllenhaal like he embodies that kind of corporate he's both this guy wandering the streets and he embodies this weird corporate you know app hustle culture uh, right. which is a fun combination yeah well it's what you pointed out of the video michael where you were saying like he does have some traits that we usually associate with like being positive traits and one of those is the fact that he's a hard worker right mm -hmm. it's so american yeah <laughs> to worship like hard work where it's like we're gonna stay up all night and 
yeah, what you're saying, Alex, hustle and do anything that we can to build our business. And it's so capitalistic (laughs) to worship that idea. But the movie is trading on that. The movie is counting on us to respect hard workers, right? It's such an American Mm -hmm. movie in that sense. I I will say respecting hard work is not an American thing, but it is the sort of American corporate sheen on hard work of like, I'm driven and I'm motivated. And like you said, I'm going to stay up all night to do this thing. And I have slogans and I, you know, I make words, (laughs) spell things out like Gary Busey. I brag about how I don't get enough sleep. I brag about never going on vacation. Like that is an American thing. Right. Yeah. I feel like it's like the sacrificing of one's health for the greater good of GDP. Is like (laughs) (laughs) kind of what you were saying also at the beginning there, Brian, of you know, the difference between a Lou Bloom and someone kind of higher up the corporate ladder is almost just degrees of separation, is kind of how I was interpreting what you're saying, as far as like the degrees of separation between an act and its most morally bad consequences. So, like for Lou to get ahead, it means he has to, you know, sabotage the brakes in his competitor's van, which ends up maybe killing him or at least permanently injuring him. But he's doing that to try to get into, you know, the news business, which is run by somebody higher up. And like all of those decisions trickle down. Right. And we're all connected in that thing. It's just mm. that the people lower where there's a, a more direct connection between their actions and the bad thing, quote unquote, mm-hmm. are the thugs and the higher up people mm, are like right. respectable businessmen. Right. Sort of how it is, yeah. And that's Nina's whole problem as well, right? She has people she answers to and she's in danger of losing her job to the person that's above her. Right. And so that's exactly like how he ends up leveraging, you know, what he wants to get from Nina because she's just as scared as he is or yeah, basically having to hustle her own way to get what she needs to keep her job. Right. right. It's it's once again pointing to the system. This whole world isn't randomly populated by only the worst people. It is also people in the worst system. Right. In this news business that is so kind of desperate and dying. Mm-hmm. And it's also the, like that those levels of separation and like levels of abstraction are what make us like any individual feel like they're not a bad person because right. like yeah nina isn't going into that house and filming it she's just right. trying to increase the ratings for her show and like the right. lawyer person that has to approve it she's not saying they should do it but all she's things like well i can't tell you to not do like every <laughs> individual is just doing their job right mm. but the greater effect yeah yeah that's why i love um is it kevin rom yeah the Mad Men guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Ted Shaw from Mad Men. But yeah, that's why I love his character because he's the he's like maybe the most moral person in this. Right. Where he's like, you guys can't show this for moral reasons. And everyone's like, but legally, but legally can we? Right. Yeah, yeah. He's like, no, you should not. <laughs> well, anything bad happened to us if we show it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Trisha, what's your lesson? Um, I love the dialogue here. I just love the dialogue here. And it's a really great example of I think something I've said before on the podcast, which is let your characters talk, right? If you go to the trouble to craft really interesting characters and you're putting them into these situations where they are having their goals thwarted at every in every scene, basically. And so they're forced to maneuver and in Lou's case, forced to maneuver using his words. What's that going to look like? And so letting you as the screenwriter, letting Lou talk his way 
out of virtually every situation. Now, it's really interesting. The first scene where we meet Lou, we see him try to talk his way out and talk his way out and talk his way out. And we think he's going to get away with it. And then he just doesn't, right? And he eventually just like attacks the security guard, Mm -hmm. which is sort of a microcosm of the movie where he's going to talk and he's going to talk and he's going to talk and then he's going to attack. Right. But in virtually every other scene, the talking works. So I think it's just a great example of, you know, you have a character and you gave him all of these things like this politeness and he actually is very articulate. He is able to be clear and sinister (laughs) while being polite. Yes. Um, What does that sound like is a really interesting question. And just studying these scenes for that unique sort of collection of traits, Mm -hmm. I think is very instructive. And even if your character is not exactly like Lou, it's it's just a good thought exercise to put characters in scenes like this and have them talk their way out of it and see what comes up. Mm. Because you as a screenwriter might be surprised by what your characters say and how they say it. It's just fun to watch characters maneuver when they have to maneuver using dialogue. Yeah, I I think it's one of the best exercises you can do as a screenwriter is just like write a scene between two characters. Doesn't really matter. Like, don't worry yet about what the plot is or what what's beginning and ending is just like, like you said, Trisha, put two characters in a room and see how they interact with each other. That can actually tell you a lot about about who these characters are. Yeah, I feel like the scene in the Mexican restaurant is almost a short film. Right, that right. Is, yes. That is yeah. exactly this, where yeah. it's just like two people who are only using their words mm-hmm. to maneuver, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. And I feel like every scene also has the obstacles and the point at which the character, you know, the their back is against the wall. Like, I feel like that's mm. a, a thing that's maybe unique in this movie is, is how many scenes, you know, it's not just their obstacles, but at some point, a character will reach a point where they cannot budge anymore. Like, I'm thinking about the the interview scene where Lou's interviewing Riz Ahmed's character mm-hmm. and, you know, he's like, fine job for a lucky young someone. And like, <laughs> he's doing the whole thing. Yeah. But then at some point, like, even though Riz Ahmed is so giddy about like, oh, this sounds cool. You have a business. I'm totally buying into the story that you're telling me. He's like, well, but I have to get paid something. Right. Like, right. I can't move any further than this. And then we get to see Lou figure out what he's going to do and how he's going to solve that. So it's like each scene the people are talking, but also there is a wall at which like no mm. one can move any further. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's really good because I think that's a pet peeve of mine in dialogue is when you see the writer making a character not have to reveal something about themselves. So it's like, hey, uh, you know, well, what's uh, what happened last night? Hey, what's over there? Maybe I'll uh, talk about it later. <laughs> da, 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 you know, and it's like, well, but the person still has this question just because you didn't answer the question. They just suddenly don't have it anymore. <laughs> and this movie is a great example of people being like, you didn't answer my question and I'm going to ask it again. And then Lou mm-hmm. having to be like, OK, now I need to figure out what what is my next, you know, tactic to to overcome my uh, my obstacle here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Alex, what's your lesson? All of this is basically my lesson, which <laughs> is just this movie is a great example of great character scenes. Like, I want to go back and study the exact scenes we're talking about mm-hmm. because it's so much fun to see two extreme characters sitting at a table together, like the Riz Ahmed character and Lou. In that first scene, they're coming from such opposite universes. Lou is treating this as if they're in a boardroom at like a big Fortune 500 company doing a, an interview for a mm-hmm. top level position. <laughs> and what he needs is a guy to like hold his 
phone GPS as they drive. Yeah. <laughs> and Riz Ahmed's character, Rick, he has he's just totally in over his head. He doesn't know what he wants, except for he just desperately needs some money. He doesn't know how to act in an interview or, or he's never really done this before. He's never had a job like he he's being told this sounds like a real job. He's obviously never been in that position before, so he has no idea how to respond to these questions. So to see these two completely different people have to interact and have some kind of a discussion, even though one of them, Lou, has no social cues. So he's going to treat Rick as if he is still the guy in the boardroom. Yeah. It just watching that scene is so much fun because every moment is interesting. Every mm-hmm. moment, I don't know like how they're going to deal with each other. I just like want more scenes like that in movies. Uh, and it, it does take extreme characters sometimes. So not every movie can have so many scenes of this nature. But I think it's really worth studying scenes like that to, to realize just how interesting it can be to watch two people that are so different have to deal with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And writing great character scenes like this in a movie that has a budget of less than $10 million is a great way to get big actors to agree to do your mm. movie. Yeah. Bingo. Yes. This is an $8 million movie. It has this cast. I mean, one of them is married to the director, but <laughs> right. you can get actors of very amazing quality if you're writing interesting characters and you don't have to spend all the money on your movie to do it. Right. The other thing I love about this scene is that it's also revealing a little bit of Lou's inner life. So like there's always another kind of level happening in these scenes. So it's yes. Lou interviewing Rick. But we're also seeing Lou mm-hmm. put on a show of how he wants to be seen and like, yeah. like what he wants to be. And so we have like a clear idea of his goals just from the way he's behaving and that he's, yeah, it's a boardroom interview and like a pancake place or whatever. Uh, so yeah, it's just all those levels happening. Give, make Michael, it so, yeah, Michael, they're called diners. Diners, thank <laughs> and you. And in fairness, a lot of business happens in diners in LA, <laughs> to be clear. <laughs> pancake place. I couldn't think of the word. That's exactly the word. Thank you. <laughs> but, but you're right. That's what, what's also so great about so many of these scenes is that every moment is also just revealing character. It's not just that they're weird. It's that we're learning more about their inner life and how they see themselves and how they're trying to portray themselves, how they're failing to portray what they want to portray. It's it's, mm-hmm. it's just so there's so many layers at every moment that it's intrinsically fascinating to watch, even if not a whole lot is happening in the scene. Right. Action wise, you know, it's just about watching two people be really fascinating and butt up against each other. Mm-hmm. And the same with Rene Russo, like she's in the, you know, the the Mexican restaurant, like she's so great. And, you know, we're kind of learning about her character for the first time and watching her try to hold on to this respect that she's kind of get the sense she's like had to crawl to like arrive at this place. And he's just kind of systematically like tearing her down but you're yeah. so on her side and it's like yeah you're too good for this but i see why you need like uh, uh-huh. yeah. it's actually it's it's such a smart choice to design that character around the you know, like the the aging like ex news anchor or like ex kind of a reporter like that is a real like archetype in our society is like the person who had this basically youth like youth was their currency that was was you know their on camera beauty whatever they've developed this skill set for this very particular business and that asset has expired and so now what does she do to stay afloat in this cutthroat business it's such a smart choice to to choose her as that character because she isn't she is in the in this both powerful position and also very weak position because of 
does she have any choices beyond this job? Has she been in this industry the whole time? Mm-hmm. Where could she go if she was fired? Maybe nowhere. Right. Yeah, my lesson is just that I, I like when movies find ways to tell their stories in a subversive way. So like we've talked about, like this is a, a movie that is a success story about someone starting a business that is also a movie about a sociopath playing the system and essentially indirectly killing lots of people. And I just love the idea, almost like the designing principle of like, you know, this could have been, you know, I guess it is kind of a a thriller and like Trish, you talked about like a crime genre thing. It is that, but it's sort of like, what if we took that and told it as a rags to riches, like success story. And I, I like the tension that that creates. And I think it forces a self reflection in the audience that I appreciate as an audience member of I feel like in this case especially it makes you look at our world and your role in that world and just adds a whole bunch of depth to it whereas like if this movie was just this is a movie about a bad guy doing bad things Mm -hmm. it wouldn't be nearly as interesting right but it's a movie about a bad guy essentially doing bad or a person doing bad things told in kind of a neutral lens of like almost through the lens of capitalism of like but this is success like he is achieving the things that we're supposed to achieve right yeah but doing it in this bad way and i think there's just so much interesting nuance that can come just simply by how you choose to tell that story yes the movie like especially the music does a whole lot of work here but the movie really is not it's not judgmental the movie just presents (laughs) the reality and that's it Mm. it's it's not trying to use the tools of cinema to make you feel one way or the other about lou except for He's on the move. He's getting it done. And he he wins in the end. <laughs> That's more unsettling to me, I think. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Why don't we go around and say what we've been watching recently? Brian, what have you been watching recently? So I binged the show Staged, which is a BBC show that is currently on Hulu. And it's two seasons right now. And it stars David Tennant and Michael Sheen as themselves, the stars of Good Omens, and uh, their partners as themselves, too. It was shot during lockdown. So the show takes place during lockdown. It's mostly shot over Zoom, but the characters also have cameras in their homes. So if it's a scene between David Tennant and his wife, there's just a camera sort of on the other end of the garden pointing at them and they just have a scene together. So it's not like everything has to be sort of written into Zoom world. So it works really well as a show that doesn't feel like, oh, it's just a you know Zoom show, basically. So the premise of season one is the real life writer and director of the show, his name is Simon Evans, who also plays himself. So the premise of season one is that Simon Evans was directing a play that David Tennant and Michael Sheen were going to be in. COVID happened, so the play is on pause. But they decide they want to keep rehearsing over Zoom, but they haven't cast the rest of the show. So they have to figure out all that. And some people want to do the show more than others. Some people are like, what is this? I don't even know if I want to do this. So that is where all the conflict comes from. But they are trying to cast other people in the show and that kind of thing. So you get celebrity cameos as people they had been talking to or someone who originally was going to have the part, but then didn't get the part or whatever. And there's so many good cameos in the show. And I want to tell you about all of them. But part (laughs) of the fun of it is the way that the show sets them up where it's like, oh, my God, I don't want to talk to him. He's scary. Well, you know, well, (laughs) but well, you talk to and like they don't say who it is until you actually see who it is like that kind of thing. The premise of season two is that season one aired and did really well. So now they're talking to David Tennant and Michael so Sheen. 
they're like, we want to do an American remake of the show. Oh, no. And they're like, well, why not just broadcast it in America? And they're like, well, because we want actors who are more, uh, you know, who, uh, who American audiences know better. And they're like, well, like who? Like American actors? Like, well, like Simon Pegg and Nick Frost or whatever. They're like, they're British. <laughs> they're like, yeah, but, Ameri- but they're more, you know, saleable. So then there's room for way more cameos now because who is supposed to be cast in this American remake? And David Tennant and Michael Sheen are trying to get themselves to be the cast of the American remake, <laughs> nice. but that's not who the studio wants. So yeah, it is so fun. The episodes are only, I think, 22 minutes, so they just fly by. And if you've seen, I know, Trisha, you've seen The Trip, right? Either the movie or the yeah, show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it has all that, of them, <laughs> all of them. Yeah, it has that sort of feel where it's sometimes just the two mm-hmm. actors just chilling right. and kind of improvising. But there's way more of a plot here than there is in the trip where the trip is sort of just like languishing in in just like right. impro- improv world. This yeah. has a little bit of that. But then you're like, oh, no, but there's an actual like a thing changed during this episode. And now there's even a character is really important in, in one of the seasons who you never even see on screen which is just, it gives it that theatrical kind of feel to it. Uh There's a character who exists off screen, but they're like very important to one of the characters. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I I loved it. And you can watch it very quickly because it flies by and there's, I think, 18 total episodes. An extremely Brian show. Right. (laughs) (laughs) My my friends who recommended it to me, they're like the second we started watching it, we're like, we need to tell Brian about Uh, this. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Alex, what have you been watching? So I've been listening to an audiobook uh, called Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. Oh, nice. And I'm bringing it up on this episode because you know, even some of my ranting earlier was probably coming from my listening of this book by Anne Helen Peterson. And she is an elder millennial. She's kind of, you know, in her late 30s. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> in the Brian uh, in the Brian category. <laughs> and she uh, she does a really great job of essentially, it's kind of like in defense of this much maligned generation, essentially just using data and just historical trends and like what's actually going on that explains like millennial woes, (laughs) (laughs) which is like, we're not making families, starting families, having babies at the age that our parents did. Uh, We don't seem to own houses. Like we don't seem to like have steady careers with benefits or retirement. Like, are we, do we all just suck? And she's like, (laughs) no, this, this is not like a uniquely flawed generation who, who like doesn't want to work it's 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 really all these things came to a head at the time that essentially the millennials were coming into the workforce you know the great recession but also the gig economy mm-hmm. and the independent contractorification of all like a, a lot of work and then there's also just the ideology of you know make your work your passion and and do your passion which i think I'll, we're all still trying to follow in some way but she had a really great line in the book that was like, but also we just want to get freaking paid. Like we just need mm. some money. Yeah. <laughs> and it talks about how like creative industries and uh, a lot of, there's a lot of work that weaponizes passion where it's like, oh, you're really passionate to be in this really selective, highly creative field. Well, you better expect to be paid very little to work extreme in extreme conditions, extreme hours, because you love it, right? This is your passion. Like, if you love it that much, you shouldn't expect like good working conditions. And anyway, I could go on and on and on about this book, but it's, it's separate in different categories. And it basically is mostly depressing, but also a little <laughs> bit of a relief to hear that it's not just you. <laughs> There's 40 years of societal trends and historical trends have been building to this moment in time in our culture and our society, especially in America. And uh, it is a little bit nice to just have a little bit of that. It's not personal. It's societal. We're all kind of screwed. And maybe there's some ways out of it. 
Yay. <laughs> That's such a like millennial need to like have data to back up the way you feel. <laughs> Trisha, what have you been watching? <laughs> so I continued my Harrison Fordorama. My tour to Ford, if you will. Nice. Uh, wow. And- wow. That's a pun from Trisha, everyone. <laughs> yeah. Write down the date and time. Okay, got it. <laughs> So I caught a few more Harrison Ford movies. Uh, a few episodes back, I was talking about how much I had just got on a kick. And, and here I am again. I saw Force 10 from Navarone, which is a very weird World War II movie with Robert Shaw that I don't recommend. <laughs> but it's on Prime. You can check it out. And then I, I saw Frantic, which I'm mm. very sorry to have to tell you is awesome. And Frantic is just really, really great. It's kind of like taken in Paris but like it's just Harrison Ford trying to find his wife that somebody stole um kidnapped (laughs) (laughs) I love that it's called frantic it's great (laughs) yeah really really good very much recommend frantic um I have to tell you though it's it's a Roman Polanski movie that's why Mm, I'm I'm sorry uh, to tell you it's good but then the one I really want to recommend is presumed innocent from 1990 which is an Alan J. Pacula thriller Alan J. Pacula of course one of our great thriller and erotic thriller directors made parallax view and clute and all the president's men and sophie's choice and like a lot of other really really great films so this is a a movie about harrison ford he plays a prosecuting attorney the woman he's been having an affair with turns up dead and i don't want to tell you too much more about it but of course he like ends up being you know kind of accused so we'll just kind of leave it there and it's it's a really great way the mystery is presented because they sort of are making us wonder, like they make you kind of wonder about who did it and whatever. Um, also, John Spencer is in it and, oh, to- nice. and and totally rules in it as well. So just for you, Michael. I like it. It's, it sounds like every movie he did around this time was just leading up to The Fugitive. Right. I was like, is this a prequel to The Fugitive? <laughs> like his wife has been kidnapped and like he's, you know, people think he's guilty. Like, wait, what? I also want to thank my buddy Chase for uh, he listens to this podcast and he texted me and was like, have you seen Presumed Innocent yet? Because Mm. you really need to in your Harrison Ford marathon. I'm honestly getting really close to having seen every Harrison Ford movie before the year 2000. So that means you're getting close to what lies beneath. To what lies beneath. I I was going to say his best. What lies beneath. I'm going to get there. (laughs) Okay, I'm getting I'm working my way there. One day we will do an episode. But yeah, Presumed Innocent. Yes. Presumed innocent is is great, so check it out. I'm excited for you to get to the devil zone. I, I mean, that's uh, also Pacula. Yeah, I know. Yeah. There, there was a whole lot of like Harrison Ford and Brad Pitt DVDs that I bought at Walmart for five dollars and fifty cents in like the early two thousands without having seen them and like, bring them home and watch them. Yeah, I think midnight. I only have like four more to go, and one of them is the devil zone, and the yeah. other one is what lies beneath. So I'll check back in with you guys. All right, excellent. I look forward to that. All right, Michael, we are three for three on watching the most us stuff ever. So <laughs> what what non-movie do you have? I'm going to have to let you know. Well, it's not. It's it's a non-movie. So at least there's that. All right. There you go. Okay. okay. Yeah. As you were talking, Trisha, I also remember that I watched Primal Fear and just what was the mm. fascination with yeah. lawyers in the early 90s? Law like, thrillers. Uh, yeah. Well, we were making thrillers of all kinds, but yeah, law thrillers especially as well. Mm-hmm. Pelican Brief was another Pacula. Mm-hmm. Another Pacula classic. Oh, that was Pacula. Oh, okay. All right, I Pacula. Mean, he's the greatest. Yes. I see you. <laughs> Yeah, so I, after everybody in the world was like, Bo Burnham, inside, watch Mm. it. Uh Aha. Sat down to watch it, went in 
this it was kind of like when I first saw Hamilton, where I was like, I'm gonna prove that you can dislike this thing. And by the end, I was like, this no. is the best thing I've ever seen. Yeah, so no. <laughs> yeah. So I watched that, but my what am I watching? It's not that because then the next night we were trying to decide what to watch. And there's this other comedy special that I guess had kind of been talked about. It's from 2017 and it's called Nanette by Hannah Gadsby, which yes. yeah, I had not seen. Where have uh, you been? I elsewhere, apparently. Uh and so uh, I watched it and it's, you know, it's similar to Inside only in that it's a comedy special that also then detours into real places about life and who we are and our moment in time. And, you know, it came out in 2017. So a lot of it is very, you know, post 2016 election and dealing with that and how, you know, just a lot of social commentary. I can't even do any of it justice. So I'm just not even going to. I'm late to the party, and if you are also late to the party and also are riding this wave of, I want something that makes me laugh mm. and then makes me cry and yes. worry about existence, but with a kind of heart behind that worry also. Nanette by Hannah Gadsby is on Netflix, and I highly recommend it. It's a, nice. it's a great genre. Yeah, It is. <laughs> <laughs> Comedy is really emerging as like, it's we're going to use this to tell the truth. I mean, I guess it's always been that, right. but it's... But now it's like therapeutic. Right. We yeah. like need it now. <laughs> we need yeah. it more than ever. Definitely. Cool. Well, this has been our conversation about Nightcrawler. Thank you, as always, to the patrons for making this show possible. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major, and our editor, Eric Schneider. I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Gyros. I'm Michael Tucker. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Uh, send us a tweet if you want us to talk about what lies beneath. I'm not trying to influence <laughs> anything. I'm just throwing that out there that's an example it could be anything <laughs> but thank you guys for listening and we will see you in the next episode bye everybody bye 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 bye